You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Hello, one of us listeners. My name is Nick. You may recognize my voice from one of us shows such as The Screener Squad, The Final Watch series, and occasionally The Breakfast Pub. Recently, I ventured into the world of audiobooks and created my own production company, Mercs with Mics, which so far has been quite successful. The bad news is that's a little too successful for me to actually keep up with the workload on. So I'm looking for some freelance audio editors to help me out with some basic editing. Things like editing out flub takes, loud breathing between dialogue, and the elimination of clicks and pops and other artifacts that might end up on the audio. Payment would start at the rate of $70 per full hour of edited audio. I'm also looking for narrators, with a decent home recording setup, and at least some previous experience in acting. If you are interested in either of these positions, please contact me at mercswithmikes at gmail.com. Thank you for your time, and a special thanks to all the listeners who support oneofus.net and keep this wonderful site going. You make me proud to be one of us. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber-supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going, and get some terrific bonus content as well. Announcement! Digital Noise Part 2 with Sir John Golson will commence in 5, 4, 3, 2. And here we are with Digital Noise with Chris Cox and Sir John Golson. Happy holidays! (laughs) (laughs) Why, it's so good to see you, John! What are you doing with your holiday season? I'm watching Blu rays! (laughs) Blu rays? Yep. Did you bring them to show the kids? I did. The kids are going to like everything in this stack. You think this stack is perfect for our audience? Wait, what's in this stack again? (laughs) The answer is no. The answer is this is not not a stack that would be... I'm pretty sure... Not every single movie? Every last movie in this stack is bad for children. Hmm. And some of them just bad for people. I'll be the judge of that. But... I will say that we're going to start off in an extremely strong point. Are you ready? Can you guess what the extremely strong point is that we are going to start with? John Golson. I'm for Final Jeopardy. My favorite, how much did you bid? I, it, I <laughs> want to say my favorite in the stack, but you keep using the word strong, so I'm going to say red heat. <laughs> I was not a pun. Okay. So let's go with best. Okay. Maytuan. That is correct, oh, sir. I, what do I? What did I make win? <laughs> <laughs> How much did you bid? Uh, I, I bid a 4K copy of Red Heat. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. All right. But Mate One is, uh, I believe, the directorial debut of John Sales. Is that correct? Oh, that I don't know. As I, a matter of fact, let me be completely upfront about this. If there's one renowned American filmmaker whose work I'm almost completely ignorant of, it's John Sales. Okay. Well, you've seen Alligator. <laughs> if there's one American filmmaker whose work I'm completely ignorant of, mm, it's John Sims. This is not his debut. That was Return of the Sea Caucus 7. Mm. Question mark? Do I have to see one through six? I, I hope not, because I just the fact that nobody knows about that one tells me that yeah. maybe it's not as good as all that. But um, 
He has certainly, he, I remember the brother from another planet came out in 84 and everybody was talking about that in indie film circles. Like it yeah. was one of those, I remember our local art theater in, jo- in Georgetown in DC was playing it heavily. And I remember finally seeing it and going, eh. I caught the second half of it when I was a kid on some UHF station after hours and liked it a lot. But that's about the closest I've come. And I've, I almost watched Eight Men Out last year. and Oh, which didn't. is terrific, by yeah. the way. Eight Men Out, his, his movie about the Black Sox, starring yeah. John Cusack from 1988. Really good. Um, City of Hope, 91, really good. Uh, Secret of Rhone Inish, 94, really good. Lone Star, a must-see classic from 96, really good. I, I, and he's even more than that written a bunch of like more genre-y stuff, like Piranha, Alligator, The Lady in Red, Battle Beyond the Stars, <laughs> The Howling. Um, he wrote the first draft for E.T. the Extraterrestrial, if you can believe that. The Clan of the Cave Bear, Apollo 13. He's written a lot. Uh, he is, but he is one of those guys who has a, despite that seemingly way different types of films list, for his writing, directing stuff, there's always sort of a feel to his movies that mm-hmm. seems kind of familiar. Uh, um, Matawan, I've been saying Matawan, I'm not sure which is correct. Matawan is what Matawan. they say in the movie. Uh, 1987 drama that has been out of print till just recently, but has been widely thought of by critics as sales' best written, directed film for quite a long time. But I've never gotten the chance to see it. It's one of those I always hear in discussions or there are things that compare it to other films to it, but had just never had the opportunity to see it. Well, now Criterion has finally put this thing out. Man, I am super glad I finally got to see this movie because this is a very solid uh, drama about a topic I knew absolutely nothing about, the Battle of Matewan, which was a coal miner strike in the 1920s in a small town in West Virginia, Matewan. Uh, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Um, it's basically, there's a, a strike. And so the coal, the evil coal company, which they were, this is factual. I exaggerate like we're talking about Hobbs and Shaw, but <laughs> the evil coal company, John Var- Vernon is the evil. No, he's not. Um, they're getting uh, what you call scabs, people to break the lines and come work for them. And they're African-Americans from Alabama and they don't know what the fuck is going on. They're just looking for work. And so all these, it's bringing up racism in this town as well. So showing up is a, and this is the guy who's thinking of his film debut, Chris Cooper. Yeah. Comes in very young Chris Cooper, who is a uh, union guy, but he's got to be kind of on the down low about it, you know, because otherwise they're just going to kill him (laughs) and wants to, like, make sure everybody's on the same side here that eventually ends up erupting into towards the end of the movie and a huge amount of violence. And this is a very tense movie. It's a very character drawn movie. Mm-hmm. It's a, a very beautifully written and shot film. Yeah, lots of uh, uh, world details that feel accurate. Uh, yeah, just you know, grimy and woodsy, and everything feels of the time. Man, you talk about like we talked on Madigan specifically about how the look and feel of the film will always lock it to the '60s. It will always just the filmmaking techniques on display. It's you watch a second of Madigan and you know that that was shot in the sixties. There's something absolutely timeless about the way that Matewan was photographed and shot. Like the movie takes place in 1920, but I, you would not be able to peg it for a movie that came out in the mid to late eighties. No, you absolutely would not. I mean, other than the ages of the actors, but yeah. right saying. Chris Cooper obviously wasn't alive 20 years yeah. or that this young 20 years before that. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, you know, this was an interesting, 
stack this time because a lot of times I can go, I can look at a stack and go, oh, this is something I want to watch and this is not something I want to watch. And typically it falls into like, um, typically I'm right. I'm sort of Mm -hmm. like the stuff that I thought I would like, I would like, and the stuff I didn't think I would like, I don't like. This stack in particular is interesting in the fact that I kind of put off a bunch of movies that I was like, uh, Charlie Varick, I don't know. And, and, uh, Thunderbolt right. and Lightfoot, even I was like, I don't know. I kind of pictured it a certain way in my head, but I didn't know I would like actually really like it. Yeah. And Matewan was one where it was like, I read the back and it's like the plight of the Virginian coworker. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and man, if this movie didn't grab me, um, yeah. it, it, I thought this was, this was excellent. And again, I think it's really down to how, how, uh, well lived in the film feels it ha- it makes political points it is entertaining it is character driven it's period driven it's just i just really this really knocked my socks off yeah it's tremendously entertaining yeah. first off i mean like it's i mean this isn't some crazy action movie chris cooper's not jumping through the air john woo style with two guns no. firing at evil like coal owners but it's just the characters are all so well drawn and there's a lot of people in it and you feel oh, like yeah. you get to know something David, about them all. David Strathairn, Bob Gunton, uh, Mary, Mary McDonald, Mary McDonald, James Earl Jones. Yeah. I love his it? name is few clothes. Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like, I kind of want that to be my name. It's kind of the David Strathairn thing is funny because I was talking to my girlfriend about Chris Cooper and I was like, Oh, it's the first movie from with Chris Cooper. And she was like, who's that? And I was like, well, you didn't see American beauty. And that's where my head went immediately. And I was like, you'll recognize him when you see him. He's like one of those character actors like David Strathairn. And then we're watching the movie, and David Strathairn shows up. And I was like, I didn't know he was in this when I mentioned that Chris Cooper is like that, quote unquote, that type of actor. Right. Um, And then there he was. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, they're both in the movie. (laughs) All right, then. And everybody is so good in this. It's I, I just don't have anything bad to say about it. Even at 132 minutes, this is tight. It keeps me with it. I wasn't like, oh, I wish it was shorter. No, I, I love the hell out of this thing all the way through it. And I'm, I it, think it's one of those films that is truly a, a classic, one of those gems, like we talked about with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, that everyone should really like seek out and see this one. Yeah, I, I, I tweeted this morning about it because I get a little bit skeptical of Criterion releases only because I think there was a time where they really um, had a heavier hand in curation. I think that financially they have a heavier hand in maybe collectability, which is fine for them. If that's their business model and that's what they need to, to stay afloat, that's cool. But I feel like the, the, the discussion that surrounds Criterion is often about the collectability aspect and not about the quality of the films themselves. Agreed. And Matewan was one where I was like, to me, this is what I expect from Criterion. This is why Criterion exists. It is an excellent film, and it was it is presented in the best possible package for this excellent film. Yeah, and speaking of that, there is a, a audio commentary here, uh, recorded by John Sales, and uh, it says Wexler. I don't know if that was like one of the co-writers. That's the uh, cinematographer. Cinematographer, there you go. Uh, that was, I guess, made for an overseas edition at some point, but it's added on here. There's two making of documentaries, one called Union Dues, which was named after a book that John Sales wrote, the other called Sacred Words, each one 26 minutes and 31 minutes. Um, it also looked like Criterion had remastered that old, uh, the old footage, the old... Uh, 
like not EPK stuff, but the old features. The the interview was they saying. usually do, but yeah. not always. It it was surprising. I was surprised at how high the quality was on that. There's a couple more interviews. One with composer Mason Darling, uh, which there's a lot of Appalachian music in the film, which for whatever reason is always one of the most fascinating topics when it comes to music that in a movie when they cover it i remember the oh brother where art they had a really mm. fascinating doc about that there's stuff really interesting in mate one in regards to music is that it they start to weave together so basically you have the situation where you do have the white um uh, the the white virginians who had who basically live near the coal mine and as the as the coal company uh, brings in a train full of african-americans um they end up you know, siding with the unions. They're like, well, we'll bring in a train full of Italian immigrants and they end up siding with the union. And there's a lot of talk about what does it mean to be union versus what does it mean to be a group or a club or a clan versus an actual union of, of workers. And there's a scene where they're all playing music together and the, the Virginians are playing their Appalachian style music and the Italians join in on a mandolin and the blacks join in on like a harmonica. And then that, uh, weaves itself through the film this three different distinct types of uh, of you know music from very distinct groups uh, that kind of that kind of weave through the film to reinforce that the themes of union and stuff like that. It really they attempt I, to do that with yeah. culinary stuff as well. In here, there's yeah. a sequence where they're talking about mixing types of foods together or finding ways to cross over different you know diet staples from different cultures. Yeah. Uh, a very interesting aspect of it. There's an interview with production designer Noor Chavushian, and then there is Them That Work, a 28-minute documentary about uh, the impact that this being made on the area, which actually created a, apparently a huge amount of jobs, a lot of people coming in as well for jobs, All uh, and this documentary was made in 2004. And then more information about the actual events that the film covers, and then a theatrical trailer, and then, of course, there is a booklet. And this is a a beautiful-looking restoration of this film. This is definitely my pick of the week for the second half show. Mine, too. Yeah, like, no question, (laughs) pick of the week. Uh, And then we have Mike Wallace is here. Now, I'll admit, this is a documentary about Newsman, and best known, of course, by most people of our age or younger as... uh, the guy who was the main person from the show 60 Minutes, which was kind of the beginning of the magazine news show trend, of which many, many, many were to follow. I think 60 Minutes was always the most respected out of all mm. of them, certainly. But I knew him that he was the guy from that, and that's about all I really knew. Um, Mike Wallace is kind of a lot more interesting than than he would appear at that. And I think this this documentary starts off really kind of grabbing you with an interview with where he's interviewing uh, Bill O'Reilly, who of course is probably one of the most hated right-wing journalists out there. And it's Mike Wallace just kind of digging into him immediately being irresponsible and all this. And Bill O'Reilly's like, what are you talking about, man? I like, I learned it by watching you dad. It's like everything I got, I got from you. I, I just do what you do. And you see Mike Wallace's face drop and he has no idea what to say. And that's how this starts. And the film proceeds to show you that exactly (laughs) like wow wallace was really a guy who definitely changed journalism but both for the better and worse and i think the film makes it interesting where it's certainly not here to condemn or praise it's just here to show you both sides of this guy who was kind of a fascinating firebrand of a dude yeah how a particular type of news piece could be something that could compete in the ratings outside of the news slot um, and if so, it needed to be something punchier and more dramatic. And 
that means that they were making sure that they had those dramatic moments. Um, it's, it is interesting because it's not like those moments were untrue. Um, but they're definitely maximized for ratings effect, which has certainly had its trickle down. And the movie addresses that, um, the movie as a doc tries to do a lot and I don't know, I don't know what it's best at. It tries to get to the heart of Mike Wallace as a person. It tries to capture a general history of sort of his relationship with events in world history. And it also tries to be about uh, the evolution of modern news. Mm -hmm. And so it's doing really three things at once as kind of an even balancing act. And when the movie ends, I don't know necessarily if I felt like one of those threads should have been more thoroughly explored than another. Um, as it is, it's pretty, it's, it's still pretty good, but I felt like there was, uh, I felt like there was something, I felt like there was something sort of missing overall from it. And I don't know if it's because, because it is kind of making, th like kind of trying to do three things at once. I don't know if it delivers a strong enough uh, resolution to any of those three threads that it's sort of drawing out over the course of its runtime. I think it's that Mike Wallace and his career and what happened with the way journalism changed because of his career is an important chapter in the history of news journalism, especially yeah. as it relates to the modern age. But it is not the essential chapter of news journalism about the modern age. Yeah. But it is important, if you're interested in this at all, to understand how we got from point A to point C. Yeah, there. because if that happens, it needs a broader doc. It needs to go beyond Mike Wallace. Right. Uh, and it felt like this would have yeah. been a great part of a miniseries about the history of modern journalism, you know, yeah. um, like, a, like a chapter in that. Wallace's life in and of itself... It's interesting enough. It's certainly not wildly fascinating. They try to make more out of it than they have to work with, like the death of his son and how he dealt with that. But it felt like there wasn't a lot of actual material or interviews relating to that that they had to even work with there, with his contentious relationship with certain celebrities. Uh, the fact that a lot of people were afraid to go on the air with him at some point is, you know, definitely makes it eminently that much more watchable, especially there are pieces you're both fascinated by and also distressed by. You're like, man, fucking leave Betty Davis alone. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, yeah. why are you attacking this person? And there are other times you're like, oh, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing here. Um, like before that journalism interviews were all just polite. And he was the guy who's like, why are we, we're, we're trying to get news stories here. You're not going to get anything by like us sipping from tea cozies. It did make me want to revisit the insider. Yeah. Which is based uh, like on his experience with, uh, um, basically a whistleblower from, I forget which uh, tobacco oh, company. Yeah, it was not one that comes to mind easily. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great Michael Mann film, by the way. One of my, I was, I'm one of the few people I know when I think Michael Mann, that's one of the first movies that comes to mind for me. I think that's one of his best works. Um, and that whole thing and the controversy that it stirred up because of that is indeed interesting, but the movie takes quite a while to, before it gets to it. Yeah. I did generally really, genuinely really enjoy this. I just, I agree with you. I felt like it's not so much something is missing so much as that this felt like it would be better served as a, a, a chapter in a longer tale about the bigger topic. Yeah. It's as far as docs go, like this is sort of a 
three and a half or four star out of five documentary. Sure. It's really, really good in terms of, and I was thinking, cause I, you know, I keep a, I keep sort of a running board for the movies that I see and I'm like, well, that would, that would put it near the top 10, but I feel like there's movies that I liked way more than this. Yeah. Um, but I can't fault the craft on display. Like, I think that it's an exceptionally well-made doc. It's very punchy. Um, it's, it's, it's entertaining it's as hell entertaining. to watch. It's constantly, yeah, it's, it's cut well. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's, it's definitely worth. It's one of those, like, I think they watch. did the best job they could have done with what was the materials well, at hand. You know, and I, I they don't, they don't, they kind of touch on this. You know, they, they talk about his son. They talk about his struggles with depression. I think that ultimately, you know, you're dealing with a guy that was probably married to his work. And so his work is his whole life. Hmm. I think, I think maybe on getting to his life, if there were more people who were able to speak about him, but again, is that what the movie's about? Is it about his life or is it about the news? Um, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I understand. I think we have the same problem with this, but not even sure if it's really a problem. Yeah. 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 I like, <laughs> I mean, I'm saying it out loud, but it doesn't mean that that's a criticism per se. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's almost like we wanted, we like what the film is doing. We just wish it was part of a longer conversation. Give us, and yeah. not just about Mike Wallace. Right. Give yeah. us one of these movies on every single major major player of the news in the 20th century. Right. There you go. Uh, so next up. All right. So I've always been not a guy who described himself as sort of a, um, and this is not a cut on our buddies at junk food cinema, but never the biggest junk food cinema guy. I'm not a guy who's like, with the exception of horror movies and maybe old martial arts films, which are the two things I get fetishy about. Like, I'm not across the board. Of, oh, that looks junky and wonderful. There are exceptions here and there. They're just that, per- that hit that perfect sweet spot for me. Uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> you're like, yeah, I know it's terrible. I love it anyway. But especially with 80s action, I have never understood why people like the, the, the bottom dollar rental section of the store for action movies in the 80s. I was always like, this is, the Schwarzenegger stuff is fun. Some of the Stallone stuff is fun, but man, there's a lot of I'll tell you what, garbage that people love. Working at a video, you worked at a video store as well, didn't you? No, but no? I spent so much time in three different video stores in my life that all of them ended up just giving me lifelong free membership. I tell you what was always out at the video stores that I, the video store I worked at in the nineties, the movies that were always out were the nineties Chuck Norris movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, they're terrible. This is already past this man's prime, and we cannot keep. These movies in Hellbound or like whatever these other Chuck Norris movies. <laughs> in are my from opinion, the eighties ones are terrible too. So oh, yeah, I'm gonna tell yeah. you, it's like yeah. Chuck Norris never got the whole Chuck Norris thing. Yeah, like, I like, kind of like the one where he's fighting a zombie because it's like, or basically, uh, what is it? Uh, he's bas- it's basically Chuck Norris versus Michael Myers, just because that's so weird. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. Silent Rage, I think, is yeah. the name of it. But it's not a good movie on any level. It's only watchable because this is weird that is that this exists. And another guy like that is, I'm sorry to everyone out there who's going to go oh, and clutch their pearls, but Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, I don't get it, guys. Can someone explain to me what the appeal is here? Because they re-released Universal Soldier on 4K, and I've never seen it. I've only seen the last one they did, which they did it as a surprise screening at Fantastic Fest, and it was fucking terrible. I left halfway through. I was like, this is so bad. And people were like, you're, you're crazy. I'm like... Or am I the only sane one here? I think the answer is obvious there. The latter. I've never seen Universal Soldier. I've never wanted to see Universal Soldier. Yeah. I've I have seen Van Damme movies that I have liked okay over some others. 
I don't think I've ever seen a Dolph Lundgren movie that I actually like. Like, yeah. even Masters I mean, of the Universe, which I own. Rocky IV. I don't like Masters of the Universe. Well, yeah. Rocky IV, though, is, a, I think, still, is like a Stallone movie. And even that, Dolph Lundgren even that, people love to praise it. I think it's one of, I think it's the second weakest of all the Rocky films. That, that's not the worst opinion to have. <laughs> um, wow. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I think, I think we're, I mean, we're not getting into Rocky, but I think it's, I think it's the, I think it suffers from post MTV. Mm. I think most of that movie is shot like a music video and yeah. edited like a music video. Yeah, it it's feels, almost all montages. It's very Top Gun, and yeah, it's yeah. weird that way. Uh, it, it's yeah, I I I'm not a fan of uh, I'm not a huge fan of two, but I wouldn't fault anybody for not liking uh, Rocky Four. And I'm actually a Rocky Five apologist. I so kind of am too. There you go. I mean, it's definitely. I, I still think Rocky Five is the weakest, but it's still not a terrible movie. I, I don't think, think it's, it's as bad, nearly as bad as people say that it yeah, is. Yeah, I agree with you. But Universal Soldier is much worse than people say it is. Oh man! So <laughs> having, <laughs> never se- having never seen this before, does everybody know the plot? You all know the plot of Universal Soldier. I mean, they're, I would like to say this was like one of Roland Emmerich's first films. Yeah, who is still today torturing us with his movies. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while there's an Emmerich film. I'm like, I, I know it was big and it was dumb, but I liked it. Yeah. Like, I liked Midway that just came out. I thought, this is big and it's dumb, but I kind of like it. Uh, one of the first, like, communal movie experiences I had was a kid was a Roland Emmerich movie called Making Contact, where I ha- was having a birthday party and it was like, let's go see a movie. And we all watched this movie, Making Contact. Uh, I, if you saw the trailers for it, you might remember it. It was heavily advertised around this ventriloquist doll that they started talking to this kid and making all the kids wishes come true. But the ventriloquist ventriloquist doll had like a sinister, like some other sinister motive to like talking to the kid and making his wishes come true. Okay. Um, anyways, uh, this is not a review of making contact. Universal soldier was, I thought delightfully stupid and terrible. <laughs> It was way campier than I thought. It's way, pretty campy. Way more homoerotic than I expected. Seriously. The fact that Van Damme cannot play a convincing automaton blows my fucking mind. I know. He's he's, he's basically so, a robot. He, but he's so bad at playing a robot. The man can <laughs> play a robot. You know what I thought? And like, you remember the one scene in Terminator 2 where Arnold just isn't clear how to play the scene where he goes, why do you cry? And like, cannot not have emotion in his voice on some level. So you're like, oh, that is such an awkward sequence in that film. He plays this whole part this way where you're the whole time. You're like, you're a fucking robot, dude. Like, what are you doing? Stop. He's so (laughs) bad. And he's riding around the countryside with like this dollar store Meg Ryan as they like get into (laughs) these wacky adventures. It's, it's such a, it was so much sillier, campier, goofier, stupider than I ever imagined it would be. I actually had a lot of fun with it, and I didn't expect to. I expected something far more dour, um, and and like like basically whatever the late eighties, early nineties version of an Edge Lord was is what right. I kind of expected this movie to be. Like this movie's going to be so badass, and it's so dopey. Like it's dopey. <laughs> Bottom of the barrel, dopey. And I enjoyed myself. And I was like, man, I should have seen this a lot earlier because I would have, I, I, this would be one that I would go back and like, I would watch again and if I was in the right. If the production do- company, The Asylum, had been around in 1992, yeah. this would have been their their film they put out to compete with Terminator. Yeah. 
you know, and for all extents and purposes, that's exactly what Universal Soldier was. It was, oh, everybody likes the Terminator. We should make our own Terminator movie, mm-hmm. even though it's not exactly, he's not technically what if there were a two robot. Terminators? It's Terminator versus Terminator. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it's Terminator 2 knockoff, yeah. <laughs> if you will, with Dolph Lundgren being the evil Terminator and, and Jean-Claude Van Damme being the good Terminator, even though they're both basically humans from Vietnam, where Dolph Lundgren is the one who went crazy and started killing innocent people. And Jean-Claude Van Damme was the one who tried to stop his sergeant, Dolph Lundgren, from doing that. And they both died but then the evil corporation plugs in a bunch of cybernetics into them and resurrects them and and supposedly they're just robot brained but then they start remembering stuff and van van damme can't help but help out the dollar store meg ryan yeah (laughs) (laughs) i i don't know man i didn't like this as much as you did i just it is dopey as hell it's certainly like nowhere near the worst thing i've ever seen of this sort of thing but it's not good I didn't, I've seen so much better stuff. There's just a point I genuinely, generally was bored. Man, that slow pan up the calves in the back of the thigh, all tan and oiled. And you're like, oh, this is gratuitous nudity. And then it pans up and you see an ass and it pans up a little further. You're like, wait, that's a man's ass. And then it keeps (laughs) panning and you're like, that's Jean-Claude Van Damme. There's a a lot of naked. shot like he's like, like freaking... Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct, like he's shot like it's like, mm, you want some of this? There's a <laughs> lot of like... naked male '80s action hero in this yeah. episode. <laughs> There's also some like, um, like the one-liners, like everybody trying to be like a Schwarzenegger movie and give everybody like funny one-liners. Yeah. There's one that's so awful because it's such a long reach for a joke where Dolph Lundgren has like a string of ears. Yeah. And I can't remember what he says, but he holds up the string of ears and is like, I can't hear you or something whatever. Like something that, yeah. dumb like that. And I was like, man, what a, what a, what a path to go down to get that, to get that <laughs> one liner. Now, I've never seen any of the sequels, but I assume that they try to up the serious factor. So I guess these. only the last one that brought back Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme. The are, or is the last two supposed to be canon? Because they came out with two, like, like almost back to back with each other. Right. That I know all our film, a lot of our film critic, critic friends were like, yes, a return to form. Like, this is the badass <laughs> Universal Soldier films we always wanted. And I was like, this is like the, to me, I'm going like, wait, isn't this like the seventh one of these? I mean, to me, I guess it's like, I did not see, neither one of us saw this when it came out. Maybe would we, maybe we would have felt differently. Oh, I don't think so. I think I, I honestly think if I would have seen this, what, what's the date on it? 91? I want to say 92. 92, I would have been yeah. 17. I would have, I would not have liked this movie. Yeah, I would have. Time has been uh, very unkind to Universal Soldier in all the best ways. I would not have liked it in '92. Fair. Well, uh, this is the 4K, and okay, so there's a lot of like with Lionsgate, especially they've been doing a lot of unpredictable 4K releases in terms of technical quality. Uh, a lot of times, the the Blu-ray they're just dumping an old Blu-ray into the package to go with the 4K. Sometimes they're not. So every situation is different. And if you are buying a Lion, Lionsgate 4K and you want the blue, the Blu-ray as well to be good, you want to make sure the 4K is indeed a real upgrade, then you're going to want to look it up on a good technical site like Blu-ray.com or something like that because it does vary package to package. The good news for people who actually want this, this is actually one of those ones that they genuinely did do an upgrade on both, which is you know, good news for people who that's what they want. The best quality of this film. This is the best quality of this film that you are going to get at this particular time. That doesn't mean you're loaded down with tons of new bonus features. Certainly either because 
you're not. <laughs> there are, I believe all this stuff is just the original stuff from the, the previous Blu-ray release, but there's two commentary tracks, uh, one from Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. Don't get that every day. There's a tale of two Titans, a 14 minute, uh, dual biography of Andam and Lundgren, guns, jeans, and fighting machines for 19 minutes with the EBK with interviews behind the scenes footage and interviews. There's a 13 minute alternate ending, which is not all that alternate. There's a 15 and a half minute behind the scenes. Yada, yada. It's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's not for me. I'll tell you what I enjoyed much more than this, even though it's still really dopey as fuck, is Red Heat, which mm-hmm. also is getting a 4K re-release from Lionsgate. Red Heat's a better movie, but this is... I had more, I had more, huh. Yeah, Red Heat's, I mean, Red Heat's a Walter Hill film. It's, it's yeah. going to be solid all around. Yeah. Um, At the very least, you know, the soundtrack is going to kick ass. Yeah. Or the score, rather. Uh, Red Heat, from just a... F- filmmaking standpoint is a quote-unquote better movie it actually feels like a real movie if you were to ask me to watch one of these two right now you'd watch universal soldier watch universal soldier again over red heat the thing is is that everything in this movie works pretty well except the casting of james belushi as the sidekick who was at this point in time in 1988 they had completely misjudged the marquee star ability of (laughs) of jim belushi because he just wasn't a movie star. He just wasn't. And what if, still isn't. What if a beer at Wrigley Field was granted a wish to become a real man? That's what, <laughs> yeah, I can that's what you have. Did you make that up? I'm, I, I think I've heard it different ways, but it's sort of like, I just think of him as like Chicago, the person. It's yeah. like, that's what Jim Belushi is, right? He's just like the worst comedy sidekick in any of Arnold Schwarzenegger's films. And I really mean that. He's like, the, I can't think of one that's worse, even in worse Schwarzenegger films. Yeah. Um, it's just the most weird mismatched thing with Schwarzenegger playing this all business Moscow cop that's come to Chicago. Who's tracking down a Georgian drug kingpin who's escaped here. Uh, and Jim Belushi is the reluctant. I don't want this fucking commie red guy with me. And when he's not doing Chicago that, he's cop. like, Hey, sugar lips. Hey, Hey, sweet legs. Like yeah. he's all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just so exaggerated. It's like, you can see on paper, the the what they were doing is fine, but Jim Belushi just has no idea how to make it work. He's got one speed, and that speed is Jim Belushi, and it does not work with anyone else except maybe cast members of Saturday Night Live. Certainly not with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and that's a shame because on the whole, this feels very much like a, a solid Walter Hill film. There's some decent action. It's really well shot. Like I said, it's got great score by James Horner. Um, the plot is even kind of interesting and cool and takes some cool twists along the way. Um, there's some like, you know, essential Arnold Schwarzenegger action set pieces, but nothing fucks up something like that. Like Jim Belushi suddenly shoving his head in front of the camera and saying something wildly unfunny in the middle of it. You know? Yeah. This was the action movie I was referring to earlier when it was like sort of everybody standing behind things and coming out and shooting Mm -hmm. as a lot of like squibs and, and gunshots and uh, squealing tires and that sort of thing. And it's like watching it thinking, I thought I spent a lot of time thinking about what we've come to know as action versus what used to be action and I don't know that it was, I think I may have been being, uh, I may have been generalizing Red Heat too much as sort of like, well, that's the way action was back then. But watching Charlie Varick, I'm, uh, you know, was sort of watching it after Red Heat. I was like, oh, like this is very clearly a movie with an action sequence. And Red Heat, I felt like a lot of it was just sort of like cop shootout stuff. Um, 
But and, all- and also Schwarzenegger, I think, also trying to play another Terminator role, uh, essentially. Like, uh, right. like what else what can o- we give him where he no acts emotion. emotionless? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, oh, and also, if you're into like long, loving shots of totally naked um, bodybuilders and action stars from the '80s, this is Red Heat has got you covered. Yeah, they do. <laughs> right yeah, from they the get go. <laughs> There's like him walking around totally nude in a uh, uh, a Russian or Georgian steam bath, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What is happening right now?" Movie. <laughs> I don't know how this avoided my. I don't know how this how I missed this for as long as I did. Yeah. Um. You know, I just watched Raw Deal. I think a couple years okay. ago as well. There's a lot of '80s I, Schwarzenegger films. I think really the only one I have left now from that period is Commando. Oh, see, where, I love that one. Yeah, where I've I've I saw uh, maybe the first thirty minutes when I was little, but I haven't seen it since then. That Commando is the one that it is no question a totally dopey film, but it's one of those that gets its its it gets its junk exactly right. Like it's the one liners are all genuinely funny and perfectly timed. It's really well shot. The action is just unbelievably violent and gory it does everything right in the wrong way or maybe it does everything wrong in the right way i'm not sure which commando nails it and you can go this movie is so stupid Uh (laughs) uh-huh and the same way the best fast and the furious movies are this and raw deal are not getting that balance raw deal is pretty bad i I I would say is the worst of this i liked red heat way more than i liked raw deal yeah red heat was just a it's a throwback. You know, there was a time period where this was the kind of movie that was as, as regular a staple as the Marvel films were the buddy cops. And it was like, you got buddy cop movies. You know, uh, you had these movies where it was like mismatch partners. Can they get along in order to save the day? And that, and you got a couple of those every year for like 25 to 30 years yeah. until the early 2000s when some of them bombed big time like oh let's let's do buddy cop with Anthony Hopkins and Eddie Murphy let's or Chris <laughs> Rock that's what it was or let's do yeah let's do buddy cop with what well, we just did we just did uh, Eddie Murphy and Owen Wilson you know it was, right. it was Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins in the uh, Joel Schumacher buddy action movie right was it really what's the name of that I thing don't anyways know. but we saw the genre we saw the genre uh die a choking slow painful death in the early 2000s. <laughs> it really did. Um, like, this, it was a formula they would plug absolutely anyone yeah, into. And this is from that particular heyday. And so I, I feel like you know what you're getting into here. Um, and and it, was, it was kind of cool. In its best moments, it, it, it was interesting to see... You, you reach a certain age and it's like you've seen all the big, uh, the big releases from whatever year. You know, and it's like the little things are going to slip under your radar are going to be stuff like Mate One and things like that, where it's just like accessibility becomes an issue. Yeah. But short of that, if it was a big box office hit or was positioned to be, you're going to end up absorbing it at some time. So to see something that was from 1988 that was positioned as like one of that year's big blockbuster movies and me just never having laid eyes on it before, it took it took me back. I It was weird because it was like a nostalgia trip, even though I'd never seen it. It was like, oh, this reminds me of the stuff that my dad would rent from the video store in the late 80s. This reminds me of watching, you know, movies in that time period. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely, it, it, there's no mistaking this is a late 80s action film. Yeah. Like, it's after the best of the stuff of this, but not quite when it was over. <laughs> there were a few left to come out that would be good. This is not one of the best ones, but... 
It's not one of the worst ones. I'd actually, in my mind, I thought this was earlier for him because I, yeah. in my mind, I thought, oh, he'd already gone on to like, I thought this was like post Terminator, but before like, uh, like really Predator. And I think this came out the same year as Predator. Um, and I, I thought in my mind, if I, if you would have just asked me, I would have said like 85, I would have thought it was like right after Terminator versus, uh, versus sort of that late eighties, early nineties where he was really at his peak from a box office standpoint. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Now, uh, this was, um, Predator came out the year before this, 1987 before that was Running Man. Then before that was Raw Deal before that was Commando. Yeah. Um, and then he followed this up with Twins which was his first comedy, straight-up comedy, and then went to Total Recall. I mean, obviously, and then Night Kindergarten Cop, and then, I mean, he he was still in a very strong point yeah, of this his career. Was, this was the high point. So, And I, I had, for some reason in my head, I'd had it as this was one of his earlier movies. So. No. Um, I, I, I watched this, and I feel like it's more of a Walter Hill film than it is a Schwarzenegger film in many ways in terms of his successes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Walter Hill is making a good movie. His stars are just kind of miscast. And that's the biggest problem with it. But yeah. I, I do think it's still very watchable. Um, they're, they're actually, okay, so this is another one of the Lionsgate ones. It also is one of the ones where both discs were, in fact, upgraded. So cool. Uh, there's actually new extra features here. There's Arnold Schwarzenegger, The Man Who Raised Hollywood, which is a inter- very inter- inter- entertaining 15 and a half minute piece about Arnold Schwarzenegger's career and sort of like the early years and to all these talking heads who are talking about you know, who working with them and how much they loved him and whatever. It's kind of a puff piece, but just saying, wow, nobody worked harder than this guy. He was determined to make it and he succeeded. And there's also a 10 minute political context of red heat, which gets into, I guess some of the the subtext the film claims to have, but yeah, I mean, if there's subtext, it's pretty sub like way down there. Uh, And then a bunch of older uh, EPK stuff, but yeah, hardly essential, but well worth a look. We move up, to 2011 with the film that God, I mean, like this is, I mean, when this came out, it was just like with the Joker. We've never seen so many film people so excited to not watch a go watch a movie as they were with the, the prequel to the thing that was also in a very bad call of marketing, just called the thing. Mm-hmm. But man, people were mad at this film without even ever, ever having seen it. And many, I know people who would probably enjoy the shit out of this film if they would just uncross their arms and stick back in their lower lip and go like, look, man, you realize John Carpenter's The Thing was a remake, right? (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, And this isn't even a remake. It's a prequel, which is kind of a cool idea with The Thing because The Thing starts off feeling like it's at the tail end of another movie anyway. So this is that movie (laughs) that does in fact go all the way to that point of, oh, this is what was happening that we saw going on at the beginning of John Carpenter's The Thing. Right. Um, And we know that there was another story there. They walk into the aftermath of another story. Why is it so offensive to want to tell that story? And I think one of the things that really upset people was they made this whole film with practical effects and then someone in the production level changed their mind and just went over them with CG effects. So we didn't even get to see most of the practical effects. And the thing is thought of as sort of like the the golden child of practical effects in sci-fi and horror for movies in many ways. And it certainly is still impressive and I think very much holds up on that level today. Uh, and you watch this with CG and you're like, yeah, it genuinely doesn't look as good as the practical stuff does. But it also doesn't look terrible. It's not a total 
dick in the dirt CG job. Yeah. You know, and I think part of that is because they're drawing over some practical stuff. So in some level, it's just enhanced practical work. Uh, but the story here follows my true love, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, <laughs> who is a scientist who has been called in in uh, 1982 to come to uh, the Antarctic to find out what, I mean, basically being offered a lot of money for a discovery that they say is like this huge discovery. And as we all know, it's because they found an alien spacecraft in the ice. Uh, they go inside it and they find a full on full blown alien that kind of looks like under the ice as well as we can see, like an actual alien from aliens, uh, at least, you know, claws and teeth and what have you. But then which breaks out of the ice and turns out, of course, to be was probably some other alien race that was being duplicated by said thing, alien parasite thing that can take on any form. And so it's much the same type of movie, I think, to some degree, maybe hitting too many of the same or trying to hit too many of the same marks that Carpenter's thing did instead of going its own way. Um, I think it still does it very competently, but for a film that very much wants to stand on its own as a prequel it spends way too much time just trying to redo the memorable sequences from Carpenter's film. Yeah. I, I reviewed this back in the day when I was a working <laughs> paid film critic. Uh, and the, uh, I, am one of the few, I think one of the few critics on rotten tomatoes who actually gave this a fresh, cause you're kind of given a binary choice about, you know, is it rotten or is it fresh? And I, and I side on fresh because I do think that it's, uh, it is competently made. I think, I think you spend a lot of the movie waiting for it to kind of do something different because mm. it does sort of the exact same thing. Um, even, you know, okay, you, instead of the Petri dish scene, there's a teeth filling scene, but it's like the same purpose. And so for somebody that's like seen it a lot, it, it ends up feeling like a lot of the same stuff. Um, and then once it does do something different, that's kind of like the worst part of the movie. Yeah. Um, at the end, it goes, okay, now we're going to show you what the inside of the ship is like. And that stuff is so by the numbers and unimaginative that it's sort of like, oh, okay. Well, they like, start setting up some stuff that looks like it's going to pay off and do something cool, and then it doesn't do anything. There's yeah. a thing with like a sort of pixelated, weird thing, and you're like, what is that? And that's the last we see of it, and it doesn't really pay off in any way, shape, or form. And other than that, it's just a very generic-looking spaceship <laughs> yeah, but overall, like I think, uh, I think it, I think for most of its running time, it's actually fairly interesting uh, as a monster movie. And you know, one of the perks of of seeing this at a screening was you get that free crowd of people in there who aren't necessarily movie fans, but they're fans of free objects. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so and are easily pleased yeah. quite often. And so watching this with them was great because it was obvious that a lot of people in the audience had never seen Carpenter's the thing. So all those moments of shock where people's bodies would change or contort or somebody's you know, side of their head would open up and bite somebody's face off, whatever the hell it's like, all of that stuff was like, brand new to them and there were like lots of laughs and screams and i was like okay that's kind of cool because all of this stuff is playing uh the way that it should to a to an audience who's never seen the original thing Mm -hmm. but i don't think it i mean it's it's almost like over time i have wanted to revisit this for a long time and watching it now i was sort of um it exists as a as a curio. Um, I don't know why, you know. With time, I'm sort of like I don't I don't know why anyone would watch this and not the other one. I think you'd have to be almost like a thing super fan 
and just have it sort of be, you know, oh, you know, like like people are with Predator, where it's like I'm going to watch every Predator, but and be you like, could be I'm like, watch everything. You could be like, I just watched the thing. I really loved watching it. I want more. I'll watch this. It's not going to be as good, but it's not terrible, man. But I think watching them back to back, it would be like, I think it would be really a really tough proposition because I do think that they are so similar to each other. Yeah, it is like a it's like a cover song. It's like a movie version of a cover song, and it's that's weird in and of itself because Carpenter's thing is not necessarily a cover song of no, thing from another world. It's a total reinvention. But this it. feels very much like you know, oh, I'm going to get my acoustic guitar and I'm going to cover John Carpenter's <laughs> thing. Well, there's a lot of things like that where it's like a cover song. You're like, oh, this is a decent cover song. Yeah. I'd always rather listen to the original, but I can from time to time enjoy this cover version mm-hmm. of it. And this is kind of that. I don't think this is a terrible movie. Its biggest fault is the degree to which instead of realizing they've got room to do their own thing, they decide to just try and recreate scenes from that original movie in a slightly different way, even down to not even bothering to change the name, which is maddeningly stupid. Yeah, I think the screenwriter, I want to say it's Eric, uh, I don't, yeah, I'm going to butcher this guy's last name. It's like Herrerserer. <laughs> it's uh, like a bunch of boy. R's and S's. Heiserer. Heiserer. <laughs> uh, went on to write The Arrival. Um, uh, oh, just Arrival? Or The, the Arrival. Arrival. Okay, because the, uh, there's also The Charlie Arrival Sheen with Charlie Sheen. Not The Charlie okay. Sheen one. Arrival is fantastic. Yeah, he wrote Arrival, and he's written some, uh, honestly, some of my favorite comics for the publisher Valiant. Okay. As well. Um, I don't think this is outside of what feels like a lot of producer input, like a badly written movie. I don't, I think the effects as much as we wish they had just stuck with the practical are still very creatively thought up. There's some cool, genuinely creepy fucking stuff in here with the, the things that the thing in question is doing that I was like, that looks badass. Yeah. And the acting is all really solid here as well with a, a, a real good cast. Winstead, Joel Edgerton, uh, Ulrich Tom- Thompson, which you, you may not know, but you know, you'll recognize when you see him. Uh, same with Eric Christian Olsen, uh, Adewale Akinoe Agabaji. That took me forever to pr- remember how to pronounce that, but I was a big lost fan. So what are you going to do? Um, and then, uh, Trond Espen Syme, I think it's who, who am I? Th- no, no, no. Is it, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember who the guy is from, um, Game of Thrones who plays the wild, red haired wildling guy. Yeah, I don't know that guy's actual name. Yeah, he, he's like, he's, he's plays one of the main characters in this. That's yeah. why I was like, hey, it's a Game of Thrones guy. Yeah, he hadn't, he hadn't done Game of Thrones, so he wasn't famous when this well, came out. A real question is, why is Mill Creek even putting this one out? Because the original Blu-ray released in 2011 is still available. You can still buy it. It's not out of print. It comes with a picture-in-picture version that this does not. The only thing this adds is the trailer. That's the only new thing. So why would you buy this instead? Well, the answer to them is, well, cheaper selling price. But I guarantee you, you can find used copies that have never been actually watched of this on Amazon for cheaper than Mill Creek is selling this for. So I was like, seems like y'all spent some money on re-putting this out, and there was absolutely no reason to do that. So Uh, Maybe they're hoping for confusion when people go to buy the thing. Probably so. Our last film is, oh, a new release! (laughs) <laughs> oh no only one of i think two we have uh of like a of of the, for these two shows i'm really curious done. to see what you think of this uh one. and this is good boys this played south by i forget what was there was something that was like i'm not missing that that i missed this for yeah i can't remember what it was i was did like i want to see good boys but so you didn't see it i did not i went to do the other thing i was like eh, this will definitely get a theatrical release and then i missed the theatrical release as well okay <laughs> and now it's on blu-ray and i'm finally seeing All uh, right. good boys which was really 
interesting only to me because I like about I like a lot about half the stuff that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg do together as production guys. The other half I fucking hate. This falls in the middle for okay. me. Okay. Um, I was very confused Man. about how I felt about this movie almost all the way through it because there's something that your brain is just yelling at you the whole time. This is terrible. They should not be doing this. This is wrong to be doing making this movie. Kids at this age should not be filmed doing the stuff they're doing here. But it's like someone was, they were like, what if it was like a live action South Park is what it feels like the argument was to do here. And I think the transition into live action is what really makes this uncomfortable, that uncomfortable point slide over to too uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know what? I didn't like this movie. Okay. Um, I could tell by your face when you were like, oh, I'm curious to see what you because thought. Because like, there's sometimes stuff it. comes out and I feel like I really, I really missed the boat on. And, you know, honestly, consistently, I would say it's funny that I, ha- that I still have goodwill towards Seth Rogen because I feel like consistently there's been movies that have come out where I felt like I missed the boat. Certainly, uh, the interview was that way. Sausage Party was that way where I'm like, I just don't get it, guys. Sausage Party is my least favorite thing and, he's ever done. And people coming out from film festivals and, you know, I think interview was at Butnamathon and the other one was at, you know, South By and people coming out being like, I haven't laughed. I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard. And then I'm like watching them in my living room to not just silence, but like my desire to actually turn the films off. Right. Uh, hey, I didn't like Good Boys. Um, I think my problem with this movie overall is it is raunchy. It's also shabby. Mm. It's shot like a freaking Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie. Like yeah. It, it is. It looks straight to video, and it uh, the it is not particularly. It's not smartly staged or executed, so it kind of bears the visual language of uh, stuff like this that's made for kids, which made it grosser to me, Mm -hmm. because it looks like a Nickelodeon original movie or a Disney Channel original movie. It has that, like, glossy, crappy, like, high-key TV sheen. It does not look like a film. Um, not to be snooty about it. Sure. No, but, but I agree with you. Something about that coupled with the content. Um, and I, I don't think it's a matter of like, I think the film tries to play it a lot of different ways. I think it tries to be coy and sweet and gross and vulgar at the exact same time. I may have actually appreciated it more if they went for broke. I felt like the film was inauthentic to the mind of a kid at that age because it's not that kids that age aren't they're supposed to be sixth graders yeah and it's and i remember being in sixth grade and i was talking to somebody about this the other day i remember in sixth grade feeling like i was the only virgin like uh i remember going to a roller rink and talking to friends and they were talking about like how they lost their virginity and i was like i'm the only virgin here and this is like sixth grade and now i look back on it as an adult and i'm like no everybody was a freaking virgin sure like everybody there's was probably one kid and yeah. he was probably like <laughs> It was probably like a very uncomfortable scenario. It was yeah. probably not consensual. <laughs> right. Lack of virginity. Yeah. So, uh, but looking back on it, it was like we were all, I think, that age group is starting to like. Uh, I didn't feel like the film had the honest perspective of what did I think about sex and sexuality and girls and stuff like that at that age. 
And I felt like the filmmakers needed to take a step outside of the ages they were at. And instead of just going, let's make children do, do things with sex things. Instead of that, come from a place of honesty and go, was like, because I remember in sixth grade being like, I'm never going to see a nude woman. Like, this is the end. I'm now 11 years old, and I will never see a naked it's over. in my entire my, life. My, my sperm have dried yeah. up. <laughs> and to me, I feel like there were, a lot of, there were a lot of people who were probably like 11, you know, 10 or 11, who started to have that, like, I'll never have a girlfriend. I'll never have this. I'll never have that. The, actually, the one part of the movie that made me laugh was the truncated timeline of the getting together and then breaking up that has him like crying at the, at the pool. Right. It's right. Like weeping. And I was like, that was something that to me again, felt like it came from a place of honesty. I think the rest of the film is sort of like, what if we made this 10 year old hold a dildo? And it's like, wow, great job guys. Like, this is so funny. Well, so I, I agree and disagree with you at the same time. I mean, when I was in sixth grade, yeah, I was going through a lot of the same, like, I don't know how to properly use curse words right. that adults use and I'm misusing things and I'm misunderstanding a lot of sex stuff, but wanting to talk about it and act like I know what I'm talking about. So it was everyone around me in a sense. That's very realistic, but they never get the, they're trying for that to be the joke, but it never feels anything but like the machinations of a screenplay watching exactly. it do it. And that just makes it not feel kind of like it should feel innocent. Instead, it feels like filthy making Jacob Tremblay, who we have literally watched grow up from the point where he was just learning to speak English, talking about dildos and vaginas and stuff. <laughs> we're like, I don't think we were ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know I wasn't, but uh, the other problem is it's just that's all they kind of got. And I don't think the plot they hang. So they, we didn't even get into the synopsis. Oh, yeah. The synopsis of it is that um, the kids hear that these girls are going to go to this party and do Molly. And so they steal the Molly because drugs are bad. Okay. And they steal the, they steal the Molly and the girls want the Molly back and the boys lose the Molly. And then it's a series of misadventures, a comedy of errors while well, they try to retrieve. It's not just that, because they're trying to remember they lose their drone because they're trying to yeah, spy on the, the girls. Drone, yeah. And they try to, they steal the girl's bag, which has Molly in it. And then it's like, you get us a drone, we'll give you, you give us the drone, we'll give you the Molly. Yeah. And then misadventures ensue. Yeah. Um, the girls, I was actually, there's a point I was like, kind of interested. These girls are kind of snarky and fun. I'm kind of enjoying these girls and I would much rather follow their story than these boys and just go play Dungeons and Dragons, kids. That's what you should be doing right now. Yeah. And, and, and video games. Like, like, leave this other stuff alone. Girls are old enough that they'd be more fun to go watch. People describe this as a, uh, like super bad with sixth graders. I was like, that, is that what you wanted? <laughs> was all I could think of. Like, I, I know that's not what I wanted. And this is a surprising lack for a movie with, with, uh, Goldberg and, uh, Rogan. A big names attached to it. Usually this type of film is littered with much more familiar people. And that was the other thing that gave it that kind of TV feel. It's like, I've never seen any of these people before. <laughs> yeah, there's a few, like, basically cameos. Like Will Forte playing yeah. uh, uh, one of the dads. Lil Ray Howery, who, is, as far as I could tell, is in every single movie this year. Uh, every, every time we're doing reviews, somewhere in the cast list is Lil Ray Howery. I don't know what his agent's doing, but... Man, stick with that guy. <laughs> uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Stephen Merchant has a mildly amusing, if not creepy, uh, cameo appearance in this. But that was about it for people that had any sort of relevance. Like I said, their films usually get a lot more. I can think as people looked at this and went, oh, no, thank you. I don't want to be associated with this. And 
I, I guess I can't blame them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a well-intentioned, but poorly thought out, like movie that sh- felt like it was made for kids, but it's definitely not okay for kids to watch. Yeah. I'm not a, I, I just didn't, I, at the end of the day, and it's like, it's funny for a movie to make me feel prudish. This movie made me feel prudish. Um, but I, I just all around thought it was shabby. I didn't think that it came from a, I didn't think it came from a really honest place. And because of that, it kind of colored the whole thing for me. And there were moments where it wasn't laughter, but I was like begrudgingly like, okay, I guess that's kind of sweet or like, okay, I like that part. Yeah. But it took, I mean, it took a while for me to even get to those points and all, but all together as a whole package, just, uh, just not my kind of thing. It's kind of a skip. Yeah. I I know people who, who liked this. I mean, I didn't regret watching it, but I'm not like, God, I wish I got my hour and a half back, but I'm never going to watch it again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when we saw, we've seen a similar movie this year that to me was heads and tails better than this, which is Booksmart. Oh, Booksmart is way better than this. But I I think it's because Booksmart has more emotional honesty in it. And it's also much funnier jokes. Yeah. (laughs) You have to, you have to find, to me, it's like the big part of it is just that core of like a real relatability of not just being like, oh, we're going to throw gags against the wall and see what sticks. But it's like, I, I can't relate to, I, there was never a moment when I was a child where I was trying to sell a real sex doll to a stranger. Like these are things that oh, aren't really? relatable. I everybody went through. Yeah, that. <laughs> these are things that are not. These are not relatable childhood experiences. And I felt like there were too few of those in this film. Yeah. Anyways, uh, there is an alternate ending, which indeed is actually different than the ending. There's a whole completely film different ending to this. Uh, that totally understand why they decided to change it. Uh, the the ending they gave just had a. Like a bit more heart, and I thought I agree with you. The ending is really the best part of this, mm-hmm. where they actually have some degree in that montage of like, oh, that all feels real and genuine and has a heart. Um, the alternate ending had a, a lot less. So there's a ten and a half minutes of deleted and extended scenes, and then a series of EPKs and an audio commentary by the director co-writer Gene Stu- Stupnitsky. It was his directorial debut, which is not all former surprising. former Office people, yeah, and producer co-writer Lee Eisenberg Another talking about the movie, name. yeah. I hate to end when we have to end digital noise on a bummer, but you know what? Just go back and listen to the Matawan thing again. Yeah. That, that'll that make you excited. Go watch that. Or if you have to, Universal Soldier, I guess. <sighs> you want to see a movie about dirty boys, watch Matewan. They're covered in soot, <laughs> coal, on their fingernails they don't and talk hair. A, they don't talk about sex. There's no sex dolls. <laughs> no? No. 